Hi, and welcome to Beyond Parking, a podcast brought to you by the British Parking Association. My name's Joey, and I'm here today with Julian, and we both work in the technology, innovation and research team. Welcome back to Beyond Parking, and the second part of our wonderful interview with Professor Peter Jones of UCL. Now, in this second half, he looks towards the future. He looks at his current research interests, and he gets us to think about how we need to consider parking in the mix of everything else a local authority uh, a municipality needs to consider how they want to support local businesses and how that has an impact on parking and how the way we travel is changing and the changing needs of the curbside it's not just about obviously car parks but we look at also the demand on the curbside and how that can be digitized how local authorities can plan to involve all stakeholders in a in a sort of more joined up fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think what was also interesting, although I'm very conscious that we're kind of giving the whole interview away here, but um, well, we should do that. Get on with it. <laughs> we probably should, shouldn't we? Well, <laughs> Basically, this is why we decided not to cut anything. <laughs> <laughs> Over to the interview. Let's move on to uh, to an area that uh, is particularly interesting because I say um, hello again because we first met at a uh, another group that we run at the BPA, the Transport Technology Forum on Smarter Parking, where we have a lot of stakeholders in this world of, of smarter parking from local authorities, commercial entities, all meeting up and learning from each other. And you presented on the MORE project, which I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is the multimodal optimization of road space in Europe. I wondered if you could tell me more about this. I believe it's still a, a project that's active at the moment. Yes, thank you. Yes, we're about halfway through the project. It's a three-year project. And we're working with cities uh, around Europe, uh, including uh, TfL uh, in, in the UK. What, the, what that project does is to uh, essentially look at main roads in cities, particularly radial routes coming in from the national motorway network into the centre of cities or into port areas uh, and, and so on but areas of activity and look at how they're managed now and how changing pressures will actually uh, put different demands on those uh, on those streets and roads in the future and we made the distinction on these sort of corridors if you like or we call them feeder routes coming in from national international networks into the center of cities we're making a distinction between two types of environment one we call roads where essentially we're talking about motorways or expressways your carriageways with grade separation where it is simply designed for moving um, motorized moving vehicles and then typically as you get closer into the center of cities we're in an environment that we call streets where you've got both a mix of motorized and non-motorized modes and you've got uh, frontages you've got um, houses or you've got shops or offices on either side so you've got pedestrians you've got cyclists you've got people crossing the road and also, as we're trying to promote livability and well-being in cities, you've got people using streets as public spaces, places to meet their friends or just to sit and relax, see the view and so on. So these pose considerable challenges. And so what we're doing in more is in each of our five cities, we've taken a one route into the centre of the city and we've looked particularly at the area that we think has most challenge. We call them stress sections. In each of the cities, we've identified a stress section and we've uh, carried out a number of surveys to look at all the, the movement and the activity on those stress sections. 
And at the moment, the cities are now carrying out um, uh, street design exercises with local stakeholders, uh, local businesses, uh, interest groups, different uh, types of road users, residents, tourists, etc., to actually see how they're able to uh, better design the use of the space between the building lines um, to actually better accommodate the range of needs uh, that are there. And as we know, this is a real challenge uh, in terms of the footway itself, where you've got pedestrians moving up and down, uh, and uh, you've got uh, the curbside where you've got loading and you've got goods being taken across the footway. Um, you've also got street activities on the footway itself, maybe kiosks selling things, um, people uh, stopping, sitting on benches, that sort of thing. Then you've got all the activity on the curbside, then you've got all the activity on the carriageway, including um, general traffic, bus lanes, cycle lanes, things like that. And that's a very challenging environment. And, and one of the arguments in the project is to say, well, at the moment, most of that space is pretty fixed. Um, some, you know, the curb is fixed, um, the uses tend to be fixed, this is for parking, this is for loading. And that if we were to use the space much more dynamically and flexibly, then we might be able to get more out of it. And the availability of data now makes that much more possible than it would have been even five years ago. And of course, there are companies now who are monitoring uh, both the use of the curbside um, and also the use of the carriageway and increasing of the footway. So what the project is doing to say is starting off by looking at how those uh, sections of street are used now and then if we were to be able to allocate and manage the space much more dynamically for example having led road signs and road markings how might we be able to squeeze more out of that space and actually make sure that it was flexible to the demand at different times of day and also uh, different seasons so we know for example in shopping streets there's greater demand for loading space in the run-up to christmas so you could allocate more space for loading. At the other extreme, if there was a major incident in a city or a burst water main or something, you might temporarily shut down all curbside activity to create the capacity to move traffic out of the city. So there are various possibilities there. The second aspect of the project is that we're looking um, at how conditions might change over the next 20 or 30 years. And there we're thinking about a range of things on the one hand, if uh, people have more time, uh, we have an aging population, maybe more street activity, or in order to make high streets and town centres competitive in an environment where more people are shopping online, part of that is to actually make it more of an experience for people to come there. And part of that being more of an experience is to do more things on the footways or in squares, you know, real-time live activities for people. So there's a changing nature of the, of the street activities that we find in our towns and cities. Um, and then we'll come along to things like autonomous vehicles and how they might change the demands for the use of carriageway space and curb space. Linked to that is electrification, the need to provide places for people to be able to charge their electric vehicles. And then on the footway, we have these bots, um, you know, the, um, the idea of these small little um, automated vehicles that will take packages into individual homes or shops and things like that. And then, of course, uh, above street level, we've got drones as well, increasingly likely to become important in the future. So as well as trying to understand how to make better use of the existing space in our streets now, we're looking ahead roughly to 2040, so 20 or in some cases 30 years ahead, to say what might the additional different pressures be then and how might we be able to, again, through a dynamic approach to street management, 
to be able to best meet the need of the variety of user groups. It's interesting you, you've um, you've given us a wonderful picture of, of a future world and, and the focus has been on the streets but it makes me think if uh, we're looking at, um, at the changing landscape of the on-street parking and, and what, how that affects those looking to park on streets or load up and and so on mm -hmm. what about the uh, actual car parks and and what's the impact of these changes for off-street parking for the car parks that are both in cities and in the outlying areas it suggests to me there might be more demand for them what what, what do you think yes it's interesting the, the off-street park car parks the roles of those again have changed over time um, and what we found for example in cities that have uh, tried to promote pedestrianisation or reduce car traffic in city centres, in some cases they've been able to actually close down car parks. Uh, Mayfair did that last year, Winchester did that a few years ago, where they uh, closed a city centre car park. It became a part of the shopping offer in the centre of Winchester, and with the money the city raised, it was able to put park and ride uh, sites at the edge of the city and provide good quality public transport for drive, drivers to leave their cars and come into the city centre. And then more recently, we've seen um, imaginative ideas of using uh, some space in car parks, uh, either not so much for cars, but for EVs and cycles. So we're changing the mix of the type of parking or indeed using them as mini consolidation centres uh, so that uh, vehicles can come in, uh, drop off loads and not be uh, going around uh, individual streets in the city centre with a, a large or medium-sized vehicle, but actually using small electric vehicles or cargo bikes or things like that. So in, in that sense, the space is being used differently. But as the pressure intensifies on the curb, then I think, and uh, that curb also is true in residential areas, as more people own cars um, or with increased home deliveries, there's increasing realization that we'll have to start leaving, leaving some spaces in residential streets for this um, either loading, unloading uh, of uh, e-deliveries or, or simply drop off pickup if more people are going to rely on taxis and Uber and things like that. Um, but maybe more of the parking demand will actually shift to off-street uh, off facilities rather than on-street facilities. So yes, off-street parking has a key role to play and that is also involving in a way that interplays with what happens on our streets. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, the way that the more the curbside is used dynamically, particularly in residential areas, and I live in an, in an area in a city where um, there isn't any off-street parking for homeowners, that mm. actually if you start to use the curbside more dynamically for deliveries and for taxis and that kind of thing, there's going to be less residential parking spaces for people do you think that's i'm just i literally just wrote it down as you were talking do you think that might start to encourage people to use car clubs um and start to encourage people to stop owning their own cars yeah the shortage of residential parking um is a very interesting issue really because um uh, i think local politicians are very sensitive to that because they're electorate if they if they own cars um are very keen to be able to park them relatively cheaply outside their own houses. So a lot of politicians have got a lot of scars from trying to regulate uh, residential parking. But obviously in, in many inner cities, uh, everybody can appreciate that there just isn't enough space to provide everybody with an on-street space. And different cities have adopted different policies there. Um, in, in, in some cities in France, for example, they have actually provided off-street residential parking spaces, sometimes underground. Um, what we tend to have done in, in London, particularly in the inner London boroughs, is to give, give out more residence parking 
permits than there are bays on the assumption that some people are always away and it'll sort of work out. Um, but what we do see very interestingly, and I, I've seen this going back over 20 years doing research in, in inner London and so on, is that where parking is very tight, although as a resident, if you have a permit, you're likely to be able to park somewhere near where you live, the chances of you coming back and finding a space immediately outside your house is actually very small. Uh, and so uh, we, we see things like parking wars where people will put out cones or dustbins in the road when they go out in the hope that they'll be able to get their space when they come back. Um, but what we've also found is, is that people say it's a strong deterrent to use their car because um, if they drive their children to school, as I say, when they come back, they may well not be able to park outside their home. So what we find in, even if people have residence parking permits, if parking is very tight, then actually their use of the car is much less uh, because of the risk of not being able to park outside their house when they come back. Um, the, the, the development of car clubs uh, obviously has made a big difference. And uh, generally speaking, the car club being that you, you don't have your own car, but you, you join a club where you have access to a car. Um, often you pay a fixed amount to be part of the club and then so much per kilometre or something like that. But typically the experience is that one car club will take five or six uh, private cars off the road. So in areas where on-street parking or any parking for residents is very tight, then the introduction of car clubs um, has given people uh, an opportunity to be able to use cars when they need to and collectively taken the pressure a little bit anyway off the um, parking requirements for residents. I wonder if that's so much still the case uh, now we live in a, an era of uh, social distancing and, and more concerns about hygiene and you know you, you'd have to regulate car clubs in a slightly different way than you had before perhaps I, i'm wondering if that's going to impact on their popularity or it, there's so many pushes and pulls aren't there yeah i well i think there's two or three things there i mean one in a sense um you've got two things you've got sort of car club where you um effectively um you, you have a car that you can make use of when you need to you book it and so on or you've got car sharing where you might actually share a ride with somebody um, and I think in terms of social distancing, the car sharing where you actually share a ride with somebody is, is potentially much more problematic because you're sitting right next to somebody. Now, in a taxi or a private hire vehicle, um, particularly the taxi, you have a screen between the taxi driver and the back of the vehicle. So to some extent, you've got social distancing with some protection there. Um, but if you're just sharing with somebody um, on a journey that you don't know, you don't have the same social distancing. Whereas with a car club, um, I think it increased cost because you would need to clean the vehicle between each use, which will reduce the efficiency and increase the cost. But provided people have confidence the vehicle is clean, then I think it would have less impact on the use of car club vehicles than it would on sharing rides, at least in the current environment. Thank you, Peter. Well, we're getting towards the end of the podcast now, and I'm really keen to know what's next for your research. And talking of COVID, how, how do you think the COVID crisis is influencing the direction of future research in the world of transport and sustainable development? I think um, COVID has, has perhaps taught us two or three things. Um, one is that we've got much more flexibility in the use of space than perhaps we've realised. And there are many examples in the City of London, um, other parts of the UK and other countries, Milan, etc., where people have had... Um, on the table, if you like, proposals to put in cycle lanes or wider, wider footways or, or make um, 
public parks, for restaurants and things for, for years or decades, but they've never actually got to the top of the pile because in a street where you have a restricted amount of space, more space for one thing inevitably, invariably means less space for another. Whereas suddenly, because the, the priorities have changed and, and health and safety have come to the top, now it's possible to do that reallocation in a way that wouldn't have been possible before COVID. But more generally, I think it, it illustrates to people that different ways of using our streets are possible. Uh, and I think hopefully that will encourage people to think a bit more radically uh, about things. The second thing that I think is uh, important relates to the role played by the internet. And, and you know, one wonders if COVID had happened a decade or two decades before, how different our response would have been and, and how much more damaging it would have been for the economy. Because it turns out that around half of people can work from home, albeit temporarily. And therefore, I think it does, to some extent, it's accelerating trends of things like online shopping and things like that, or people working from home more. But I think that will be a permanent change to some extent, which actually will help a little bit to reduce peak demands potentially on our networks, but it's a road network or rail network or whatever, and therefore help us to deal a bit with the problems that we've been facing and have been getting worse for many years. I think the other thing that's really important is to show the inter is, is that we're recognizing more and more the interdependencies of things. So on the one hand, <clears throat> we're obviously now very dependent on how people have become very dependent on health service. We have a sense of essential workers, which not only include people in the health sector, but also people who are doing deliveries uh, to ourselves or to, our, to the shops. Um, also basic public transport and, and things like that. And as we try and ramp back up to normal living, while at the same time recognising that we have to um, have a degree of social distancing, which therefore limits the uh, effective capacity of public transport, um, then we're starting to become much more clearly aware of the interdependencies between different sectors of the economy. Because um, you know, the, the first lesson that students are taught about transport in economics is transport's a derived demand. In other words, the people and goods we see moving around are not moving around for the fun of moving around on the whole. They're moving around to serve, serve more basic needs, whether it's for children to get to school, um, grandparents to see their grandchildren, people to get to work, uh, goods delivered to shops. It's, it's what's happening elsewhere in the economy that actually drives the demand for passenger and goods transport. And so if we um, are concerned about not overloading public transport for social distancing, then in some ways transport can't solve that problem. It's got to be the sectors that actually give rise to demand for transport. And what's interesting actually is the same problem is facing us in those sectors as well. So for example, in education, the debate is around whether schools can accommodate all children with social distancing. In the case of UCL, for example, where I'm based, the estimate is that in many of our old buildings, we can't have more than 25% of people on site at the same time, which obviously makes a big change and puts all sorts of demands on how do you actually manage access to those sites? And it becomes a little bit like a traffic problem, but in a building, not on a street. And of course, the classic one is in, in places like the City of London and Canary Wharf, the capacity of an elevator or the capacity of a lift that normally you might have got 16 people in a lift, now you can't get more than four in because of social distancing. You can't have people piling up in the lobbies. So, so the problem of regulating is not only a transport problem now or a traffic problem, it's also becoming a problem for 
for education, for uh, general offices and things like that. And it shows the interdependencies and also shows potentially that if we were to start working across sector, we could actually organise our society in a better way that reduced pressures both within buildings and on our transport systems. Uh, and therefore, to some extent, gave people a better experience and a more reliable experience of moving around our towns and cities. Perhaps there's lessons that can be learnt in terms of social distancing um, in the way that we've looked and managed congestion in the past. I'm just thinking in, in terms of the school system, yeah. whether you can do that same thing where you sort of stagger, stagger the students and you have a slightly um, longer school day where the school's open, but students are not necessarily in the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, you know, in situations where a lot of people uh, drive to access the, the various activities and services, whether it's education, health, um, other types of employment, then of course the parking controls themselves could help in that because if you're relying on a parking space, you could be given a permit maybe that's only available after 10 o'clock in the morning or something. So parking could be part of the solution to try and spread out these peaks of demand. Peter, where can uh, listeners to this podcast find out more about your publications? Because there's so much uh, you've been talking about that I'm sure has piqued people's interests. Yeah, I can't remember the way because I don't have my own website. But if you put my name in UCL, you, you get through to the, um, the, the normal depository there where you, you get things. We'll put the link in the, in okay. the blurb right. to this, um, to this pod podcast. But I was just wondering, because you've looked a lot into the the future of the sector and kind of um, going on to sort of 2040. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think for our local authorities and our private parking operators are the things that they should look out for, things that they should consider doing as positives and what pitfalls there might be moving forward into the future? Um, what's happening is that uh, the use of our space, our street space is becoming more diverse. Um, so there are more demands on the footway, there are more demands on the, the curbside because of different things that people need to do uh, at the curbside and, and on the footway. Um, and actually, uh, there is an um, initiative at the moment, a new ISO standard, uh, ISO TR4448, which is just being developed at the moment, which is trying to come out with a set of protocols for uh, autonomous vehicles that are either uh, pulling up at the curbside um, or on the footway itself, if they're self-cleaning vehicles and things like that. Or also, if you have a, an autonomous van pulling up for loading, unloading, then you might get little bots coming out the back, that, that, out of the back of the van that then go to the individual shops. And the question is, how do you regulate all that? Um, and at the moment, when things are being done by human beings, there's a lot of informal rules or people just nod and a wink and they give way. But obviously, if everything's got to be in software, you can't rely on that you've got to put the rules in the software. And so we're involved uh, within our MORE project in, in this ISO standard because cities are very concerned that um, whatever rules go into the software are ones that actually will support the objectives of the city, uh, whether it's in relation to health and air quality or public safety or whatever. Um, and therefore it's making everybody think much more carefully about how should we use the curbside or what, what rules should be be there who should get priority um, and again on the footway you know you, you probably don't want 50 bots going up and down the same stretch at the same time so how would you regulate the number of those how would you make sure that people can still stop and chat 
So it's forcing people to, to think of it in a much more quantitative, if you like, way of thinking without giving individuals rules about you can't stop here, can't stop there. But in, in that wider context, if we're going to have autonomy, um, how do you actually make sure that autonomy is introduced in a way that, that helps society and doesn't become an encumbrance to the way that people use uh, footways and use curbs and so on? So this is a challenge that's only really emerged in the last few months, but I think um, certainly for people providing uh, on-street parking, loading facilities and so on, or people interested in, in footways and on-street restaurant, uh, you know, on outdoor restaurants, whatever, all these things need to be thought about in a way that perhaps have just been rather ad hoc before. But if we're going to uh, autonomy and software, have to actually be written down. Uh, and I think that poses a really important challenge for a whole wide, wide range of industries. The ethics of autonomous cars, it sounds like a, a perfect focus for a PhD, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> there are several, yeah. I bet, yeah. Well, you could have a whole team on that one, couldn't you? Yeah. Well, Peter, um, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. There's so much to learn from uh, this, this discussion we've had with you, and I'm sure we'll probably hear from you again, or maybe uh, we'll see you pop up at one of our uh, webinars that we've been putting on, uh, on a regular basis at the BPA. Great. Well, it's, it's a great pleasure to talk to you both. And uh, yes, I look forward to keeping in touch in the future. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Good Thank talking you. to you. Amazing. I really enjoyed doing that interview. It was really fascinating. I just wanted to let you guys all know that we're going to be having a break over September. That's to allow us to do a little bit of planning for the rest of the podcast as we kind of launched into it at the start of lockdown. And now it's time to have a little bit of a pause and a think and kind of plan for the future. And also, I haven't had a holiday since uh, I think probably Christmas. So I am in need of a bit of time off. So you will hear from us again in October. And um, feel free to listen back to previous podcasts. There's also webinars that we're doing. And there's also the BPA annual conference that is in September as well. So check that out on our website. Cool. Well, catch you all soon. Bye-bye.